0: Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices, about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are, again, sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review and sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 21 today of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delargy, and I am your host for another 40 minutes or so of waffly old stuff about Soho. The beating heart of cosmopolitan bohemian London and the films that are set there. This is something of a Butchers-themed episode, and I don't mean I'm going to spend the time complaining about the loss of all those traditional Soho family businesses like Butchers, Bakers, and violin Makers. The Butchers I'm talking about was one of the many, many companies based in Soho who serviced the film industry. Butchers Film Services, for that was their name, were based on Wardour Street, where else? In the first half of the show, I'll be chatting to Dr. Laura Main from Hull University about their long history. And, of course, the film chat today is about a butcher's film, The Night Caller* from 1965. Something of an oddity, this film, perhaps the only Soho-based science fiction film, unless you know of others. It has a strong cast and an interesting premise, so it's strange that it's not more well-known. To talk about The Night Caller*, I'll be joined by the host of the FilmGuff and Here Lies Amicus podcast, Kevin Moore. Stay tuned until the second half of the show for more... more... Kevin Moore. <laughs> a few weeks ago I bought some old photographs and a publicity leaflet for a film we're doing in the podcast quite soon called Something in the City from 1950. The film was produced by Butchers Film Services. According to the leaflet, Butchers, whose phone number is listed as just Gerard 7282 were based at 175 Wardour Street. This is now where Cards Galore can be found, next door to the George pub. And they also had offices in Birmingham, Leeds, Cardiff, Liverpool, Manchester, Glasgow, Newcastle and Belfast. So they were clearly a major force in UK film in 1950, but now they no longer exist. They did, though, have a hand in a lot of the films we talk about on Soho Bites, and the name Butchers will be familiar to viewers of everybody's favourite TV channel, Talking Pictures, along with other long-forgotten companies such as Nettlefall Studios, New Realm and Grand National Films. Butchers were formed by a chemist called William Butcher in around 1900, initially providing the chemicals used to develop film. And the company survived in various guises, as a distributor and as a producer of low-budget, mainly B-features, until the 1970s. Although they never had the consistency of style and quality of a company like Ealing, for example, they did have some periods during the 20th century in which they were successful and quite prolific. Between the wars, butchers produced very popular, cheaply made comedies starring big music hall and variety stars of the day, such as Old Mother Riley and the double act Gert and Daisy. But if they had a heyday, it was after the Second World War when they made various successful film series, including one based on the BBC radio detective Paul Temple. To find out more about Butchers Film Services, I got in touch with Dr. Laura Main. Laura is a lecturer in film and media at Hull University with a particular interest in the inner workings of the post-war UK film industry. I asked her to tell me literally everything she knows about Butchers, this long departed fixture of Wardour Street.
1: It's a company about which very little information exists, aside from a couple of books which are pretty hard to get hold of. But Butcher's actually began in the early 1900s. It began distributing films in 1910 and then moved into production in 1917. Um, so it actually has a very, very long history in British cinema. And it was one of those companies which uh, would have been involved with the sort of quota quickie films of the 1930s, those sort of very cheaply made low budget films that were made to satisfy the kind of law which required that a certain number of uh, American studio produced films films had to be British, Uh, so it actually kind of ran for quite a long time. It had a partnership with um, a company called Nettlefold for a few years and that sort of broke apart in uh, the early 1950s, in 1953. Butchers actually kind of stopped doing stuff for a couple of years, and then in 1956, they came back as a distributor and producer. In this period in the mid to late 50s, they were quite prolific because this was a period when sort of B films and second features and those sort of cheaply made sort of low budget crime films were really in demand. Uh, So this kind of was quite a good time for the B film. Why were
0: they in demand?
1: Uh, The double bill was still quite popular in this era. And, you know, you'd see kind of an A feature would be screened with a sort of B feature or a second feature. So we actually see kind of a lot of these second features produced every year we're talking kind of a few dozen until to, by the early 1960s um, for various reasons they just disappear completely in 63 there's maybe you know 40 50 B features being produced every year in Britain in 64 there's very little in and by 65 they're just gone because they just ceased to be kind of profitable and they stopped being made. And it was in 1964 that Butcher is actually kind of finally folded. Well, um, it didn't really fold, but it stopped doing these, these films. It still distributed a few films throughout the 60s, but effectively, along with a lot of the other B companies in Britain, that was it. That kind of form of filmmaking just stopped being a thing. But the film
0: we're talking about in this programme after this is The Caller from 1965. So it sounds like they distributed it in their dying days,
1: yeah, uh, it certainly would have been. Yeah, so they were more active towards in the sort of early 60s, but there were still a couple, a few films that they put out um, towards the end of the decade. The Night Caller, um, uh, I think it's also known as Blood Beast from Outer it is, Space, yeah. <laughs> um, is uh, yeah, so that was kind of 65, and they put out a film called Night After Night After Night as late as 69. So they were still kind of doing stuff, but it's more like the the kinds of films that were Butcher's staple, they just weren't viable anymore as a product. Companies stopped doing them. And that's why Butcher's kind of catalogue just sharply declines, along with the catalogues of other B producers uh, in this decade.
0: So who were their um, contemporaries? Did they have equivalents?
1: Yeah, they did. The kind of high-end bit of the, the market for B-films was uh, the Edgar Wallace films, which were put out by um, I think on the ABC circuit and they were produced by Jack Greenwood at Merton Park Studios. There was Independent Artists, um, which was also putting out B-features of quite significant quality actually. Again, those were more sort of the higher end of the market. They did uh, like films like House of Mystery. So those were kind of butchers' contemporaries. They were kind of renters and distributors of more low-budget films. They reissued older films. Some of them bought films from the American market, B-films, and cut them and kind of put them together to make feature films. So those would have been butchers' contemporaries in the market, if you like.
0: So if there was a butcher's house style, is it this kind of quite drab, <laughs> run-of-the-mill <laughs> crime stories in their basic sets and that kind of thing
1: given its long history it doesn't actually have much of what i would call a house style okay. i mean they did kind of do these types of films but i'd say that the style of these films is more like to do with the mode of filmmaking in terms of what they were they would be written by usually uh, people who were quite established uh, writers in british cinema but kind of working at the level of of second features they would be kind of written quite quickly, they would be quite formulaic. Sometimes companies like independent artists actually just came up with t- a list of titles of films without having the films, they would just give the titles to the writers and say, write this, you know, write it in a oh week, <laughs> write it in a few weeks. And basically, if if it was a company like independent artists, which also did a features, they'd actually use their studios at uh, Baconsfield studios, they'd use leftover sets. So if they were filming a film and they had a few days between kind of shooting schedules, they'd say, can we get this movie out? Can we get it made? I did hear of one by the Danzigers. So that's another kind of contemporary of Butcher's uh, distributors would be the Danzigers or Danzigers. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I heard they turned around productions in 10 days, (laughs) which is pretty incredible. So it's like the mode of production is okay, written really quickly, written in a formulaic way. Um, We're basically using what we have as cheaply as possible. If we can reuse props from other productions, all the, all the better. If we've got technical hands uh, sitting around on in the studio who um, don't have anything to do, give them something to do. So that's kind of how these types of films were made. They're basically the successors to, or continuation of, the, the cheap quota quickies of the 30s. Um, so overwhelmingly, they tend to be black and white crime films and crime thrillers.
0: It's always struck me as quite weird that in the UK film industry, you have these studios on the outskirts of london like poundwood shepperton walton-on-thames and then all of the kind of post-production and all the kind of distribution offices and those people like they're all based in soho why soho why not a little village of offices like in hollywood you know a company will be all part of the same sort of campus i've never quite known why it is that soho is the center of the film industry why companies like butchers because they had offices in Belfast and Liverpool and Leeds, all these places. Why also? Why their headquarters in Soho?
1: You know what? I don't know. <laughs>
0: you know what? I I this to everybody is... and nobody knows why.
1: I mean, the film industry is... Uh, still is, really, all based around kind of networking and partly that's to do with location. So it's about who you know and the contacts that you have. And there's always been a kind of cluster, a Soho cluster of film companies. It's kind of partly to do with how the industry works in terms of knowing people, getting people to do stuff, like the informal nature of how productions come together, being able to get hold of equipment equipment and yeah, facilities and stuff. So there's kind of like a, that location element of it is important. As for why it started or how it started, I'm, I can't uh, tell you. <laughs> I don't when know. When I spoke
0: to um, Adrian a few episodes ago about EJ Fancy, mm. who was a film producer and a, and a distributor and a, a massive crook, it was perfect place for him to be in because he was rubbing shoulders with gangsters and and his kind of slightly sharp practices could go it's you know it's a wild west in a way Soho, there's no kind of the police don't get involved because they're all paid off i don't i'm not i'm not suggesting that butchers were a dodgy company but i think the film industry does kind of cut corners and everything's so up to the wire Mm. I think there is always an element of just like if you can get away with it and and Soho is the place where you can get away with stuff
1: Yeah, definite sense of that and especially among the sort of renters and distributors who were essentially just hustling a lot of the time and you know if you're making such cheap productions anyway like there's there's like kind of uh, stories about people making making films in soho hanging out the back of vans with cameras to get footage that they don't have permission to get and it's kind of done on the fly it's done off the cuff the people who ran these companies uh, these producers may also have had interests in a strip club or a theater they may have run sex shows. They may have used people in their shows, in their films. So there's a kind of link between the CD underground nature of Soho and these kinds of films. Yeah. Um, so that's quite an interesting thing to explore too.
0: How would you set up as a distributor? Or, I mean, how would you get a toehold in the industry in Soho back in those days?
1: What would usually happen was a distributor would kind of um, get the rights to distribute a film to a number of cinema chains, um, depending on kind of their contacts. So like Butcher's films might have been distributed to like a specific sort of smaller independent cinema chains around the country. It was, it was quite a big deal to get your film on one of the major circuits. Like it was only a, f- a limited number of films would have gone to those major circuits rank in ABC every year. So. That was a huge deal, and you'd you'd recoup a lot of money from that because you know. But otherwise, you'd have to just make the money where you could.
0: And would you get bundled up with another film? You say, "Tell you what, this is your package. It's the sound of music and Covergirl Killer." Not that they would pair those two together, but <laughs> would, would it be a kind of? Um, no, definitely not. I get the impression when I read some stuff that cinemas would be forced to take films that want to necessarily take. Distributors mm. would be pushing out films because they had to do a certain number of this sort of type of film. I mean, where did the power lie in the British film industry? I don't think it was with, with butchers, was it? Because they were no. they went out of business. <laughs> no,
1: Power lay with the big two, Frank and ABC. And uh, it lay with the American companies that um, set up shop in Britain, uh, the, the bigger sort of American um, film companies and distributors. That kind of making exhibitors take stuff they don't want is a practice which is, kind of it came to the attention of in britain the monopolies commission in 1966 uh, because it's kind of quite shady so basically you're a small in- a cinema exhibitor and you want a film from uh one of the bigger companies and you're saying like can can i have this and they're like yeah you can have this but you also have to take a few films which aren't so great with the film that is really great that you want that you know is going to bring in an audience so those other ones that maybe aren't so great you you show them with the 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 main film Um, second features didn't take box office they were kind of sold for a fixed price so they didn't kind of recoup, but they'd be kind of shown first, just before a bigger film or an A feature, which would recoup box office money. Often these smaller companies started as exhibitors. And sometimes that grew out of uh, a theater or a strip club. Like I think maybe Compton started that way in Soho in the 60s. So it's basically, you've got, you've got people who own a theater, um, who maybe buy a cinema and then who, but then they want to fill their cinemas with materials. So they, they go into distribution. So they'll get cheaper films from you know the renters and distributors, and then once they've got a bit of capital, they actually have the capacity to maybe go into production and start producing their own films. So there's a kind of like a a, a link, like a moving up the steps. Like a, we've got you have premises, and then you kind of moving into distribution, and then maybe moving into production. So you kind of uh, yeah, yeah get get a foothold, you know, start a company that's a production and distributor that way. Um, so Compton did that. Um, and there are probably a couple of other companies that kind of did it that way as well. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but that's quite an interesting... because like, So, like, the Soho place is quite important, uh, like, the premises of Soho.
0: It's a place of venues, isn't it? Mm. I mean, the West End in general has got lots of theatres and... Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I know that the first um, silent film producers set up on Wardour Street in, like, 1908 or something. I don't know. I don't know if there's a kind of... Um, what do they call it? Industrial inertia. You know, when, a, when an industry is in a place, it's mm. difficult to move away from there because it's just where it is, you know.
1: Uh, maybe not inertia, maybe the opposite of inertia. Like you need to, agglomer, clusters need to kind of have an agglomeration of companies which then grow. And because it's, it's kind of like a network thing. Like it's really convenient to be in the area, to know people in the area. Um, a lot of productions and, works and creative projects come together just from conversations that are quite informal among people who work and live in the same Go to the area same
0: pub and stuff having and access that. to
1: the same facilities. yeah, it's like it, it really like it's actually kind of part of the how a sector grows. and London would be the place to be for that. so you wouldn't the film industry um, didn't start in uh, Hull um, or uh, you know um, Manchester it started in London and kind of grew from there and it mm. was for the longest time. That that metropolitan area is was and still is just where a lot of the industry is based and where things happen.
0: I know that hardly an episode of Soho Bites goes by when I don't say how much everybody loves Talking Pictures TV. But if you're a fan of Butcher's films, you've even more reason to love Talking Pictures. As Noel Cronin, co-founder of the channel, bought the rights to the entire back catalogue of Butcher's films some years ago. So with any luck, we should continue to see these films on the telly and DVD. When they might otherwise have been lost thank you to dr laura main of hull university for meeting up with me on zoom laura has just recently launched a podcast together with another former guest of the show dr adrian smith of sussex university called second features you can find links to this and to some information about her work on the show notes at sohobytespodcast.com Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobytespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. The Night Caller, directed by John Gilling and distributed by Butchers in 1965, is not your archetypal Soho film. For a start, the first half of the film is set somewhere in the English countryside, and it only shifts its centre of gravity to London at the halfway point of the film. In fact, there are two distinct halves to The Night Caller. The first half is all science fictiony and centres on a secret government research facility called Foldsley Park it's in one of the Falsley Park labs that we first meet our crack team of three scientists. Dr. Morley, played by the patrician yet cuddly Maurice Denham, Dr. Jack Costain, played by American import John Saxon, and Anne Barlow, played by Patricia Haynes. Working as far as we can tell with only pencils and a high school oscilloscope, the team discover in the opening moments of the film an unidentified flying object hurtling towards Earth at great speed. When the mysterious projectile is recovered in open countryside just outside Ascot, according to realstreets.com, our heroes are puzzled to discover that it's not a huge asteroid or a spaceship, as their instruments had suggested, rather it's just a white sphere, not much bigger than a pumpkin. After some funny goings on and some extraterrestrial shenanigans, we wave goodbye to nearly every character we've met in the first half of the film and jump ahead four weeks where we find ourselves in London's bustling West End. Here we meet a new cast of characters and soon learn that young women have been disappearing all over London and that this is somehow connected to the strange events out at Falsley Park. Enter Detective Superintendent Hartley of Scotland Yard, a dedicated but world-weary copper played in what is, for my money, the film's standout performance by Alfred Burke. Working with Dr Jack Costain, the only character from the first half of the film to make much of an appearance in the second, they soon established that the missing women all have one thing in common. They were all aspiring models and had answered a classified ad in a magazine called Bikini Girl. If you've seen Cover Girl Killer, another 1960s butcher's films which we covered on episode 17 of Soho Bites, you may notice a similarity between the two films, which is that in both victims are identified and captured through their association with a fictional, rather fruity, top shelf magazine. We also learn, thanks to some diligent coppering, that the fiendish scheme is being run by an extremely tall, extremely mysterious man. His face is always obscured and he's rented a suite of offices in Soho, but chooses to have his bikini girl applications sent to a mail receiving service based in a Soho mucky bookshop. But who, or maybe what, is this mysterious stranger? The Night Caller is a slightly odd, schizophrenic film, a kind of sci-fi, noir, horror, kitchen sink, police procedural, like a cross between Quatermass, Covergirl Killer, and up the junction. This is perhaps the reason why, in some territories, The Night Caller is called The Night Caller from Outer Space, just in case you didn't realise it had a sci-fi element to it, and in the US, for the total elimination of all doubt, it's called The Blood Beast from Outer Space, There's another major difference between the international versions. In the UK, the theme music is an instrumental organ and brass number called Image by Alan Haven. That's what you can hear behind me now. Elsewhere in the world, the audience was treated to a cheesy lounge number called My Colour, sung by Mark Richardson. what puts the Night Caller in a league above many other low-budget films of the time, though, is its cast. Across the board, from the leads like Morris Denham and Alfred Burke, to the enjoyable cameos by Warren Mitchell, Marianne Stone and Aubrey Morris, the performances are convincing, engaging and entertaining, including the appearance of a character called Commander Savage, played by Ballard Barclay, otherwise known as the Major from Faulty Towers. Incidentally, this is the third film we covered on Soho Bites in which Warren Mitchell appears and promptly steals the scene. Check out episodes 1 and 11 for more details. In 2011, a colourised version of the film was released. I don't know who was responsible for this, but it's only partially successful, with some scenes looking as though they've been coloured in by my five-year-old with crayons. I've included links to both the colourised and black and white versions on the show notes at SohoBitesPodcast.com for your delectation. Please, sir. I want some more. Of course you want more. You want Kevin more. Kev is a horror aficionado and produces two film-related podcasts. FilmGuff, Strapline, lowbrow talk about low-rent movies, and Here Lies Amicus, a show that explores the short history of Amicus Productions. I was quite pleased with myself to have come across a film that Kev didn't know, and I think he quite liked it. I spoke to him as usual, using the modern marvel that is the internet. Give us a run through of the premise of this film. I mean, it's, it's very much, as they say, a film of two halves, isn't it?
2: Very much so, yeah. It's basically a mutant humanoid that comes from outer space to kidnap young Earth females for the first half. Then the second half, you have the flip of it where you've got a police procedural where you've got people looking for missing persons.
0: So the first half is is set mostly in this Government Research Facility. (laughs) Shepperton Studios. Shepperton Studios, (laughs) otherwise known as. I mean, they they didn't do much, did they, really, at all? I suppose you just took a few signs down and, um, (laughs) you know, made sure that no extras in 19th century costumes wandered by, and that was it. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) It's the bike sheds. We have our three heroes who are a scientific team who look like it's not the Avengers it's not the pretenders it's not the oh it's the protectors the protectors (laughs) so older wise gentleman good looking young stud and his female equivalent that's the template that it seems to be based on
2: yeah which is Morris Denham John Saxon and Patricia Haynes which is quite a trio of talent right there
0: absolutely yeah let's talk about Maurice denham later because i absolutely love morris denham yes I, I didn't know much about the other two to be honest i recognized john saxon i'll fill the blanks in with john saxon
2: but patricia haynes i'm a bit of a blank we're apart from the avengers because she's actually the other woman that's played emma peel yeah this is strange
0: <laughs> I, mean, I mean not that i want to dive too far down this rabbit hole but oh, no uh, no
2: when, when was this? You sent me a picture Was that It was um, an episode Called Who's Who Her and um, I'm trying to think Of his name Did now down, Freddie, Jones. Oh, no, Freddie, Freddie Jones No Freddie Jones oh, Okay Yeah right. um, Her and Freddie Jones Were body swap Criminals, and they swapped with Steed and Peel, and went off and did all sorts of crazy, nefarious
0: schemes. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. So
2: Patricia Haynes for one episode, is Emma Peel.
0: Right. So she wasn't one of the uh, (laughs) one of the canon Peels, as as we call them in the biz. No, (laughs) in the biz. (laughs) Yeah. She had a couple of interesting marriages. Yes, Michael Caine was one of them for a start off Michael Caine and then Bernard Kay Yes <laughs> That's a weird combination what? of husbands I know, well she doesn't have a type Obviously not, no <laughs> So something has uh, entered the airspace of the earth It's heading for London And then veers off and our, our team of scientists Go and get it and take it back to the lab And strange things begin to occur Because we don't know what it is at the beginning, do we?
2: No, no idea, have we? Well, they bring back this mysterious ball, don't they? Um, just park it up for the night. Maurice Denham decides it's time for tea, so he leaves them to it. John Saxon tries his best with Patricia, but gets nowhere. So yeah, is that a little he's... bit of
0: flirting is a bit, a bit ropey, isn't it? <laughs>
2: yes,
0: <laughs> but at least
2: he knows when to quit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're kind of left with this ball he decides to call it a night as well because obviously he's getting nowhere patricia's left alone in a darkened room with this object while she's trying to type and then we get a mysterious presence turn up with a what looks like a, a very ropey marigold glove
0: yeah that's what we see to begin with isn't it It just this hand it is. comes round as as somebody who's not massively versed in the sci-fi and uh, horror genres i'm never quite sure how revolutionary these concepts are that are being discussed in um, science fiction films what this thing is this globe thing is which is only about the size of a basketball a large basketball or a large watermelon yeah it's actually something that allows physical bodies to transmit themselves to it so, it's not a spaceship yeah. as such, but it's like a portal to allow people or aliens to come in. That's it. You've got it. See?
2: You've got it after about eight watches of the film. Yeah. You're finally there. In black and white <laughs> and colour and all sorts of things, yes. all different versions. I well, now understand it. I do think it's a really clever idea, this, because not only is the idea of teleportation something that's ahead of its time anyway, this was before Star Trek started beaming people up. But the idea that you've actually sent this ball rather than a spaceship means that you've cut out the problem of special effects. You don't have to have a flying saucer or a spaceship of any kind. You've just got a ball that lands in a field somewhere near London.
0: Yeah, it is very low budget, isn't it? I mean, I think they've done well with the budget, yeah. though. I think... It doesn't look ropey. No, I mean, there's a few moments where you think, oh, that special effects a bit dodgy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they've clearly avoided having to go down the special effects route Because they're aware that it would look dodgy.
2: I think that's why it works as a a Quatermass kind of
0: sci-fi, really. You know, again, you've got touches of horror with Quatermass for a start. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not as famous as Quatermass or The Day the the Stood still, mm. which is a simi- has a similar kind of... Heavy science vibe. Yeah, heavy science and a kind of like ominous one person comes who's a representative of their whole species. And, yeah. But it, it hasn't... I mean, people don't know the film, do they? It's not a well-known film in the way there's other two films. No. Are. I no wonder why that I would mean, be... I don't know, because, I mean, this wasn't even on my radar until you
2: mentioned it last year. And yet, when you look at the cast, you can't understand
0: why it isn't more well-known. It's as if it just dropped off the face of the earth. Yeah, I mean, the cast, I think, is what elevates it. The performances, we'll get into performances in a bit, but the Morris mm. uh, Denham is fantastic. I think um, Alfred Burke, who plays the, the chief yeah. copper, is absolutely brilliant. But anyway, jump ahead of ourselves. So we... Our uh, alien chap, whose name we don't know yet, because he does have a name, but we still he don't know the name. Eventually, He escapes from this government research facility in a stolen, I think it's a Jaguar, isn't it? Yes, an XJS, I think. And disappears off. And the next thing we know, we've gone four weeks ahead. We're in Trafalgar Square looking at... Uh, newspaper headline and women have been going missing for the last four weeks Yes, this was just
2: after the um, departure of Maurice Denham wasn't it? Our alien caller decided that he was going to dispatch him in a very unceremonious way No. No No Help me Help me Help me
0: poor old morris yeah not
2: quite sure how that happens no it's still kind of mystical even though we've seen it so many times yeah but it does kind of pave the way for a bit more action and rather than three scientists stood about spouting gobbledygook that nobody understands
0: (laughs) well as far as i can tell it's an energy valve of complex and fantastic ingenuity it's so complex, we can only theorise. It's quite beyond my knowledge. It works as a powerful oscillator on the bench circuits. It responds to stimuli throughout the electromagnetic spectrum. Throughout the spectrum? But how does it maintain equilibrium? Well, at the moment, I can only suggest that the selenium shell acts as a thermionic buffer. So we gather that these missing girls are something to do with the escape from the research facility, but we're not completely clear how that is established? No, I mean, we've kind of skipped
2: forward four weeks. We're told this by the newspaper headlines, you know, that it's four weeks since this alien landed on Earth. And why that's actually in the
0: papers, I don't know. Well, I think John Saxon's character does say later when he's talking to the police, I had to go to the press with it. So yeah. I think he's, he's he's blown the um the story. He's
2: a very unprofessional scientist. In fact, he's not a very scientist kind of scientist anyway, is he? No, it? he's, too, he's um, too
0: good looking. He's too <laughs> smouldering to be a scientist.
2: Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's face it... He, He's pretty much known for going off on flights of fancy already. The first time they actually go to the ball, he says that, oh, it's been landed on Earth by some something inhuman. And then, of course, the first time he talks to our copper, uh, the first thing he says is, oh, missing girls must be aliens. Yeah. Can't be some dodgy bloke just hanging around Soho then. No, no
0: got to be I aliens. <laughs> That's the conclusion I'd jump to if I was a I was Absolutely, a yeah. <laughs> Could you explain how these girls have been going missing? Because we, we discover bit by bit, don't we, over the, uh, yeah, over the course of the f- th- second half of the film. through
2: the small ads. Now, this is an odd leap anyway, because the time doesn't work here, because the alien has come down and managed to sort out um, an office in Soho. A big office, yeah, with sliding uh, doors. Yeah, and to put adverts in Bikini Girl or whatever it is and get 200 responses. So you think, well, that's going to take a, a good few weeks anyway. Yeah, but having a phone line installed yes, prior to 1980 yes. took weeks. <laughs> you got no chance. No. <laughs> um, he sets up this P.O. box anyway and gets girls to go in to do some glamour shots for Bikini Girl. One of the girls that disappears, there's a young chap that's decided to collect car registration numbers. So
0: they actually track this to, shall we say his name? We could say his name, yeah. Shall we say his name? Yeah. Yeah, Medra. We can say the name because Medra is the title of the film in certain territories. It is, yes. Well, uh, well uh, Madre in uh, Italy. El Tiro di
2: Londra. I
0: think I'll have to uh, refer to Google Translate to find out what that means. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really complicated to me. I, I will never be able to figure it out. Yeah, but no. Medra.
0: What actually is this ruse? How does it work? Well, he's
2: using these 3D photos into that nobody's ever seen before. He's been. Uh, taking these photos of these girls and he actually has one delivered to one of our intended victims doesn't he
0: yeah the picture seems to be it kicks into a life at some point it uh it starts to light up and everything and that yeah. then hypnotizes them or something and then they have to just get up and go to medra or something,
2: yeah. So it's a three D
0: mind control picture. Yeah, it doesn't quite add up. But I mean, what you don't expect it to be scientifically accurate. Do you, what is your? I don't do star ratings on this program, but uh, what would your star rating be out of well, uh, out of uh, thirteen? No, out of, 11, out, of, <laughs> out of out of seven. <laughs> yeah, out of seven. Yeah, great. Um, I'd give it
2: a four then. A four um, out of seven. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's not despicable and it's above average. It's kind of elevated by the performances.
0: Shall we get into the performances, actually? Yeah, because I think the performances are are what make it. And the the reason I've been able to watch it two or three times in the last week is because I've enjoyed watching the performances, particularly Alfred Burke, who is just great. Yeah.
2: He's, he's brilliant in um, Public Eye. So I've been watching on Talking Pictures. Yeah, it's
0: really good, isn't it? I'd never heard of it until they started showing it, and I've got kind of hooked on it. Yeah, and he, I mean, he's, he's perfectly suited to the character in that and in this film. Yeah, he's got this world weary outlook on life, and he's he looks sort of downtrodden and I think he's my particular favourite. Yeah. Do you have any Are there any high points for you performance wise? My high points have to be uh, Warren Mitchell and um, Marion Stone Yeah. because
2: those two as the parents of the daughter that's gone missing they were brilliant. And Marianne Stone, I thought she looks kind of familiar. I'm not surprised. She's in 11 carry-on films for a start-off. She does look familiar. I can sort of see her a nurse's outfit somehow. Yes, well, she's in carry-on nurse. She's actually right, okay. one of the main nurses um, in that one. But as well as that, she's right through the sort of 70s and 80s. I looked at it she's like done 269 entries on IMDb. And it was <laughs> that like, is a lot of You're more prolific than anybody else on this film put together.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Jean went out about seven o'clock that night. So she'll be back about eleven. 11. Yeah, they had this lovely conversation with the police with Alfred burke She's got her own front door yeah, she's got or, where her own they're overlapping each other and that kind of thing, mm. and um lots of kind of uh, a size to one another and a size to the police. And it's a nice lovely little scene. They make it really believable though, don't they? Because yeah. like
2: it'll go No, it was definitely Thursday because that was my lodge night and she's like, Oh yes, definitely.
0: And it really feels like these are real people. I wonder if they just said, tell you what, go away. Here's a rough version of the script. You go away, work it out amongst yourselves and yeah. and they come up with this lovely little scene. And then it does a wibbly wobbly into a flashback. Yeah. And the way it does that is really nice as well. The camera's sort of the camera's very fluid throughout, I think. It's particularly in the second half. Yes. Lovely kinda of handheld camera and it goes Well, it was last Thursday and there I was and da, 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 da. and then the camera sort of goes to the net curtains. The lights go down almost in a sort of theatrical way, and then it zooms back out again, and she is by herself in the room and they've gone back to the previous Thursday. Who
2: is that? What is it? What what do you want?
0: There's a superb single scene. An actor called Orby Morris plays a pawn shop proprietor. He's fantastic in that scene. He is. He's obviously gay. He actually mentions that he's
2: not really noticed the girls that much, but he's noticed the police detective that's in front of him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you think, well, this is quite brave, because this is still when it was illegal. I mean, obviously, it was a lot more public than it had been, but it was still frowned upon. Maybe this is possibly why the film didn't succeed. I'm not sure.
0: It's not particularly particularly um, positive
2: Portrayal of the um No, definitely community. not. <laughs> no, definitely not. It's very John Inman. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, Inspector. Did I frighten you?
0: Superintendent. No, you didn't. Well, congratulations. It's some years since we last met, isn't it? Yes, it is. Six months of living off the proceeds, wasn't it? They have history, Alfred Burke's character and Aubrey Morris's character, because yes, it, that he missed him great. for what was it for? immoral earn living off immoral earnings or something. Yes,
2: that was it, yeah.
0: He'd already done his time for that, he says, so that's it. So now he'd come back to run this this <laughs> pawn shop yeah. with no pawn in it. <laughs> yes. It was empty apart from a copy of Playboy. <laughs> they do this kind of cat and mouse thing where they're sort of talking to each other through the shelves. Yeah, the empty shelves. And he obviously has this sideline which is as a P.O. box yes. receiving place. For Medra. For Medra. In those days, if you wanted to receive some specialist material, you probably wouldn't want to have it delivered to your home in um, Basingstoke, where your wife might find it. Exactly. Or in the office. So you have these P.O. boxes, lots of which are based in Soho. I suppose I've seen this Medra about a dozen times. Each time I've seen him, it seems sort of
2: weird. No I know.
0: Sounds crazy.
2: I think he wore a mask.
0: A mask. But under the scarf? Mm -hmm. A mask. You will see his eyes through the slits.
2: Aubrey Morris has a great line in it where he actually says if if you don't don't do business business with peculiar peculiar people, people, you don't do business business around here at all. In this part of the world. Yes. Like a snake. Which is great. And that really does get the measure of the character and his practices
0: pretty much in one sentence. And the area. Well, the idea of the area. Yeah.
2: Magic seeing you again.
0: Should we talk about Ballard Barclay? Yes. Now,
2: he's um, more known as the Major in Faulty Towers. Yeah. And he's pretty much the same Ballard Barclay as in this film. And you think, has he
0: ever done anything else? I don't remember seeing him anything else. I think the difference between his performance in this film and in Faulty Towers is, I think his moustache is a bit bushier.
2: <laughs> Tell me, this, um, this, what do you call it, um, transmutation of matter...
0: You think we'll ever be able to do it? It's possible. You might say we have our feet on the bottom rung of that ladder. We have. Yeah, we can transmit in two dimensions on the telly. All we need is the third substance. And then we'll be able to pay them a eh? Would you like to be the first volunteer? No bloody fear. The John Saxon character, he's the thread that runs all the way through it. And it's clearly, is that thing that used to happen quite a lot of getting an American star in to, yeah. you know, into British films. And he plays British as well, which is odd. Yes, and um, it was really strange hearing him say "telly." Yeah, yeah, he did say "telly," <laughs> didn't he? Yeah. But you said John Saxon, is—he's a bit of a horror staple, isn't he?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. During the '50s, he was signed to Universal. And he was on a $225 a week retainer. And he had a pretty decent contract. And he was a heartthrob. He was a teen heartthrob. And they pretty much farmed him up against some of the greats, some of the big names. You know, um, he's played against Audrey Hepburn. He's played with Marlon Brando. And yet, they really couldn't do much with him. Uh, Universal actually cancelled his contract in the end because they said that he looked too ethnic because he's actually Italian-American. Okay. Which is why he then goes, fair enough, um, I wanted to do character stuff really anyway. Is this before or after Nightcaller? Oh, this was well well before. It was late 50s. It might have been early early 60s, actually, because he was in 1962's The Girl Who Knew Too Much, which is Mario Barber's first giallo. He's gone over to Italy to do character pieces, because he's not only is he fluent in English he's also fluent in Spanish and Italian because he's got none of this luggage over there of being this teen heartthrob he's able to get really decent roles and he sort of ends up being the police detective for a lot of films and this is something that carried on throughout even through to Nightmare on Elm Street in the uh, 80s Mm. he turns up in that as a detective again he's a, a name that's known to genre film. He does, I think, possibly his
0: biggest film is Enter the Dragon. Right. With um, Bruce Lee. Did he have that kind of genre cult edge to his image before he made this?
2: By the time he got to this, yes, he'd started to get that genre cult thing because his first three pictures in Italy were all pretty much solid cult picks, and he was doing some really decent roles in those. So you could see why... They picked him for this, but I'm trying to find out why he ended up going from Italy to Britain because there's one picture that he does for John Huston, but that's back over in the States and that's a few months before they started filming this. So he's globetrotting all over the place and then he goes back to Italy after this. It
0: feels like (laughs) it's not a particularly good vehicle. for. He obviously has talent. Maybe he was just trying it. Maybe he was just giving it a shot. Yeah. You often have that... I mean, it still happens now. Stick an American name in a British film to give yeah. it an international appeal. There is that international element to this which is uh, off, has often happened again in, in, that, in this era. It was based on a book called The Night Callers. The film is called The Night Caller. Sometimes The Night Caller from outer space. But in America... <laughs> It has this ridiculous <laughs> title Yes The Blood Beast from Outer Space <laughs> I think to call it Blood Beast from Outer Space Does bring to mind those teenage screamers in big Cadillacs yeah. and It's Driving not that movies. sort of film Driving movies, yeah It's not that sort of film mm. at all There are two versions of the theme music as well, isn't there?
2: Yeah I, I quite liked the crooner version I know you think it's a bit cheesy but I kind of liked
0: it I think well I think both cheesy I think both versions of the music are cheesy yeah
2: the instrumental thing I always think sounds like something from the two Ronnies you yeah know, like the Mars bar thing whereas the vocal version if you like sounds like a cheap Bobby Darin you know the Woolworths version
0: John Gilling, anything to say about him particularly? Oh,
2: yes. Uh, John Gilling, the director as well, he went on to do two decent Hammer productions. Um, He wrote and produced and directed uh, The Pirates of Blood River, which starred Christopher Lee. And then the year after that, it did The Gorgon, starred Jacqueline Pierce as a, a woman that changed into a Gorgon. Uh, Barbara Shelley, not
0: um, Jacqueline Pierce. We haven't talked much about Maurice Denham. I really, 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 really like Maurice Denham. I don't know what it is about him. He has this kind of reassuring presence. and uh, And I think because he looked the same from the age of sort of 19 to 92. <laughs> Right, now I found a picture of him from 1933
2: and he looks exactly the same. It's from the 30s and like, wow, you must have lost your hair at six. Yeah. (laughs) I'm doing the Here Lies Amicus podcast. Maurice Denham actually appears in two episodes, one which I've recorded and one I've still to do, but he's in a spy film called... Danger Route, where he plays a spy handler, and like you said, he's one of those actors you you watch, and he's just instant believability. So he's got this shorthand that really works. Then the other one is A Touch of Love, which is a kitchen sink drama, basically, starring Sandy Dennis and Ian McKellen, and he's great in that. He plays a heart surgeon. And these are Amicus films
0: are they? Yeah. Yeah. I thought Amicus was all horror films. Ah, very surprising. They're all sort all over the place. I did read a review of the film that said it feels, you know, it's mid-60s, it feels more 50s than 60s. And it felt that like, to me in a way. Mm. The squaddies are all these kind of national servicemen in a way. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, very carry-on sergeant. Yeah, and not... I mean, it's difficult to tell looking back because it's over 60 years ago, but I wonder if it felt old-fashioned mm. at the time. Probably, because... I mean, that kind of sci-fi
2: was pretty much dated by the mid-60s. You know, we'd already had real wonderful technical things for a start-off. The Americans had really got a hold of it. And this might have looked a bit parochial, to say the least, which is probably why it ended up with that insane title for the States, because that's probably the only way they could sell it.
0: Yeah thank you kev for taking time out to talk to me about the night caller if you'd like to listen to either or both of kev's podcasts film guff and here lies amicus you can find links to them on the show notes at sohobitespodcast.com where you will also find a wealth of other stuff there's links there to dr laura main's work including her podcast second features and i've also included links to the night caller in its entirety both the black and white original and the 21st century colorized version i spoil you people i really do as ever, you can tweet us with your comments and suggestions on at Bytes Soho or email us at Soho at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Soho Bytes is produced by me, Dumdelagi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jingan Young. You can follow Jingan and her new research project on Twitter on at Cities in Cinema. See you soon and bye for now.